doesn't need to be complicated. You don't need a big budget, but you must commit yourself and commit your staff to paying attention to what I call the three P's. And that's the, uh, the place, the process, and the people. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. First of all, when Craig called me, and he called me about two weeks ago and asked me to present, or asked John and I to present on this program, I was a little apprehensive because I thought, you know, again, you heard me talk yesterday about ego and humility, and I'm not, I wasn't real sure how I could tie in hosting the Masters and what you folks do for a living. Now, the good news is I understand your world. I, I, for some of you that don't know, and the gentlemen and ladies at my table asked me to tell you this, I actually started in Florida in the club business. In Tampa, uh, I was a very, very young uh, general manager of a Lagorce Country Club at 27 years old, and most recently was at Mr. Bowers Club uh, Gulfstream when I was lured away to um, Augusta National. I also tell people I'm not any smarter than anyone else in this room. I was just very, very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Gulfstream had a similar membership to Augusta National. About 40 members were members at uh, both clubs, and literally they didn't use search firm. They just went to their membership, and they said, go out and find us a, a club manager. And ironically, uh, when they called me the first time, I enjoyed Gulfstream so much I told them no. Older gentleman walks in my office, who was a member of both clubs, built a Tennessee cabinet at, cabin at Augusta National, walked in my office and said, Jim, he always said, I always thought you were a pretty smart guy. But I'm not real sure why you got in this business if Augusta National calls and you won't even go up for an interview. Well, the rest is history because he picked up the phone and had me redial the number and talk to the gentleman I just talked to. And I've, uh, as you learned yesterday, I've been there 20 years. But I was still a little apprehensive. But what we're going to try to do today is I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about dreaming, innovating, challenging yourselves, challenging your board to really, really think outside the box. That's what I get paid to do. 70% of my time and John's time is on those three P's that we talked about yesterday. The other 30%, my chairman, the people I work with expect us to dream. They expect us to innovate. They expect us to change. And we just heard from Susan uh, a few minutes ago, that's what Generation Y expects. They want experiential things. They want people who say thank you to them. You're going to see at the end of our presentation, uh, there is no better way, and I'll, I'll I probably will spoil it, but the last slide I'm going to show you, one of the things we do at the Masters is our membership, who is there, most of them are there in their green jackets. One of the things they are trained to do is any time they come in contact with a patron, they thank that patron for coming to the Masters. And in a big way at Berkman's place, we have greeters that greet people as they arrive and they're there when the people leave. And you're going to see a picture of Dr. Condoleezza Rice standing at Berkman's place in her green jacket thanking people for coming to Berkman's place. So I couldn't agree more with what you said. So again, um, I also want this, as Craig said, to be interactive, because quite frankly, as I said yesterday, we don't always get it right. I have learned more in the last 48 hours spending time with you than I probably have in the last two years. So I've learned a lot from you. And so as I show you this, this is the first time we've ever done this. If you have ideas, if you have questions, as Craig said, feel free to raise your hand, ask those questions. Now we're going to try and get back on schedule and try and get everyone out of here by uh, 12, 15, 12, 30. So we only have about an hour. 
All right, so the points we'll cover, what differentiates the Masters from other sporting events, how do we instill a, and ensure a culture of excellence during the event, how do we give our members, guests, patrons, and players the service and quality they desire and deserve, what systems do we put in place to guarantee we continue to get better, how do we focus on the three Ps to drive excellence, how do we channel innovation and manage the environment so the Masters is consistently regarded as one of the finest sporting events in the world, and how do we become, avoid becoming reactionary, only chasing one, others' ideas. That is huge with the organization. As I said yesterday, we really don't care what other people are doing. We kind of chart our own path, sometimes we'll make mistakes, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't make any difference to us what the NFL is doing with the Super Bowl, what Major League Baseball is doing with, uh, with the World Series. It's great, we go benchmark, but at the end of the day, we'll chart our own path. So how does this apply to you? This is where it got tough for me. But at the end of the day, it's all about systems, processes, and most importantly, the mindset. Um, it's our belief, and it's my belief, that if you are truly committed to driving excellence, or at least getting better each and every day, then you must have the courage. And I should have underlined courage because that's what it takes. Because it's tough, guys and gals, when you're working for a board that wants to go left and you really know you should go right, and they're paying your salary, it takes incredible courage and determination to steer them in the right direction. And some of the best clubs in the country, in my opinion, are ran by leaders who are willing to make a difference and who have the determination and the guts and the courage to say, no, I know you want to go left, but we need to be going right. And what, what we just heard for the last hour and a half drives that point home. So focus yourself and your board to take risks, explore ideas that on the surfaces Surface, others may seem as unnecessary, fiscally imprudent, or in some cases foolish. You're going to see Berkman's place. There are a lot of people in our organization that thought we were foolish, that thought John and I had lost our mind, and quite frankly didn't even necessarily see that it could be fiscally, uh, it was a fiscally sound project. The reality of it, I'll show you, it's paid for itself. It's four or five years old, it's paid for itself. So from a fiscal standpoint, it was definitely a smart idea. Dream big. Um, ask your team, what if, what could we become if we put our mind to it and begin, be willing to break the mold if necessary. Install a culture where you expect more from your people than they ever thought possible. This guy to my right, I mean, he challenged me and I said, John, there is no way we can do that. We can't do that without help. There's no way it can be done. And quite frankly, John challenged me and he expected more from me than I really thought was possible. And then become, avoid becoming reactionary, avoid following the, the latest trend following what the latest folks are doing. So the history, what, uh, I'll give you a history and then I'll tell you a couple things that sets us apart from any other major sporting event and then I'm going to turn it over to John. So the history is that the event started in 1934. Bob Jones and Cliff Roberts were just looking to host an event to hopefully enhance the sports standing nationwide. That was their, that was their goal. It started, as I said yesterday, as the Augusta Invitation Tournament. Bob Jones reluctantly agreed to participate, but did participate for 12 tournaments. His best finish was 13th in 1934. For those of you that don't know, in 1930, he won the Grand Slam. But once he won as an amateur, he decided he did not want to go professional. He was going to practice law and really, in essence, kind of hung it up after, after 1930. So he was very reluctant. He didn't want to go out and just, you know, and, and not be able to compete, but reluctantly agree because he thought that he needed to be out there to make sure that we, we, they were able to attract other players uh, uh, to Augusta. Um, Clifford Roberts, quite frankly, was really the, um, the brains behind the operation. 
Uh, Bobby Jones was the face, but Clifford Roberts was really the brains. And Clifford Roberts had many, many innovations, but some that you're very aware of in golf. He was the first one to ever rope the fairways. He added mounds behind the greens to give gallery better viewing. He established leaderboards on the course. He was the one that devised the system that is now widely used throughout golf, uh, the scoring system uh, where red is under par and green is above par or even. And then he was one, one of the first that made the decision to televise golf uh, nationally. And quite frankly, um, some of you will find this strange, but up until the mid-80s, uh, the club was not on fina sound financial footing because they never ever changed their philosophy about non-commercialization. So as every event was trying to commercialize and starting to commercialize in every sporting event, because of Bob Jones and Cliff Roberts said, no, we're not going to commercialize. Now, they left a lot of money on the table in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s. And it wasn't really until Nicholas's win uh, in the mid-80s where golf viewership in the United States completely changed and people really started to get into watching golf on television. So what differentiates us? How are we different than other sporting events? Because as I said yesterday, we no longer compare ourselves to being, we, we certainly want to be the best golf event, but our goal is to be regarded uh, throughout the world as one of the great sporting events. Uh, the first thing is the key to it all, delivering the highest quality, innovation, exceeding expectations, and still in a culture where perpetual improvement is absolutely, absolutely paramount. Every single day, whether it be the regular club operation or the tournament, we must get better. That's how we're all wired. And so we are expected by our chairman and by the peop my peers in the organization and John's peers, we, that's the culture. We've got to get better every single day. We will never, ever, ever sacrifice quality for convenience or additional revenue. We leave a lot of revenue on the table, but we will never sacrifice the quality of the event or the quality of the telecast for additional revenue. We believe that if you have a relentless focus on quality, revenue will eventually follow. I think that's the masters and I think that's in your clubs. If you focus on quality and excellence, eventually the revenue will follow. Now that's very hard to convince boards of, and I've been there. You want to get better, but it may cost you a little bit more and they're going to say, what's the return on our investment? But eventually if you stick to it and you're passionate about it, it will come. We will not allow ourselves to be reactionary or lenient with policies just because others do. For an example, we have a dress code at the Masters. If you don't have the right shorts on, if you don't have the right shirt on, we, we, turn, we turn you around at the gate. No other sporting event will do that. There's no cell phones allowed on the property. We're the only sporting event in the world where you're not allowed to take a cell phone. Now, will we change that? I don't know, but I was talking to some of my, of my friends here that are you know, Generation Y, and I told them we didn't have cell phones, and they started to nod their head like, well, maybe that's kind of cool for three or four hours a day. I can go somewhere where people aren't on cell phones. So I don't know if we will or not, but that's what we currently do. There's no yelling, there's no you to man, in the cup, all that kind of stuff. You do it, you're out. Uh, there's no running. So in other words, there, we are not willing to relax our decorum or behavior standards just because everyone else is. You're gonna come to the club, you're gonna act like a lady and gentleman, and you're gonna conduct yourself whether you're, whether you're coming as a guest of a member or you're there for the Masters. Masters, as I said yesterday, is the last non-commercialized sporting event in the world. In comparison, if you watch the Masters telecast, there are only four minutes of commercial time per hour during the telecast. That compares to the PGA Championship at 12 and a half minutes and the Super Bowl at almost 25. So when we put on the telecast, we will not sacrifice revenue 
for more commercial time at the expense of delivering what we think is one of the best sports casts uh, in the world. Other things, there's no corporate tents on the property. In fact, there's no tents, period. So it's one of the few sporting events you go to, there's no tents. Every structure on the property is a permanent structure. Now for us, it's much easier than a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship. As those events move around, they can't afford to put up a structure. But at the end of the day, the reason we build permanent structures, one, we think aesthetically they're better, but at the end of the day, the lines quickly cross. Tents are very, very expensive to put up and take down. They're disruptive. And so we have found over the years, in almost every single case, it's much easier for us to build a facility than put up a tent. There's no logo or brand-specific signage. Player and caddy are only inside the ropes. Again, very, very different in the world of golf. If you watch the U.S. Open, uh, my dear, dear friends at the USGA, but if you watch the last group coming down on, uh, on Sunday, there had to be 25 people inside the ropes. At the Masters, it's about the player. It's not about the press. It's not about security. It's not about scores. It's a, not about television. It's about the players. We have an unyielding focus on producing award-winning telecast. There are no portable toilets on the grounds. And as you saw yesterday, our customers, our patrons are fanatical about toilets. They're fanatical about restroom facilities. I've always said, if your restroom facilities are clean, the rest of your facility is clean. If you go in a bad restroom, if I go in a restaurant and the restroom is in poor shape, I'm not eating in the restroom. Or restaurant. You wouldn't eat in the restroom anyway. <laughs> Hopefully. My reputation, they may send me in the restroom. Uh, all food and beverage, merchandise, and support services are done by the club. We don't contract out anything. The only thing that's contracted out are security and television. And you're going to see here in a minute why we do that. And because of our relentless focus on, the ma on excellence, the Masters is now the most coveted ticket in sports. One other thing I put, we, we cancel, we refund. Last year, two years ago, on Monday, we had a rain out. So we had tens of thousands of people that had bought a Masters ticket drove in from all over the United States and showed up at the Masters. They got on the grounds for, for, in some cases, a few minutes, and we shut the place down. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. The place was absolutely jam-packed with people. We blew the horn, and one of the things I'm responsible for is concessions. Now, John was out of Berkman's place with a whole bigger set of issues. I walked down the concession stand in the main corridor, and we closed it down. Now, people were standing in the concession stand just to get out of the rain. And I said, folks, we're closing today. And I had a, a grandfather and a son and a grandson stand there. And the son starts crying. And he said, you don't understand. We drove from Indiana. And I said, sir, there's nothing I can do. I wish I could. And the grandfather said, we didn't even get to see the golf course. We came in last night and did not get to see the golf course. And we didn't really come to watch golf. All we wanted to do was experience this place. And, the, and the, the, uh, the son said, the middle son said, yeah, and I wanted to eat a pimento cheese and egg salad sandwich. <laughs> so quickly, I knew I wasn't going to allow him to be able to do the other two. I started grabbing pimento cheese sandwiches and egg salad sandwiches off the shelf and just throwing them at people and say, have as many as you want. But they had to leave. But that, within an hour, our chairman had made the decision that every single person we invited on Monday, we sent out a press release, and every single person was invited back the next year. Which again, we didn't have to do. It's very clear on the ticket. You buy the ticket for that day, and if it rains out, it's rained out. But we just didn't feel right taking people's money and not allowing them to participate or experience the Masters. Yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. 
Well, it depends who you buy it from. <laughs> if you buy it from us, it's about, um, for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, about $45. Uh, if you have series badges, well, series badges are Thursday through Sunday ticket. That's now two fifty for uh, the four three, days, three hundred, three twenty-five. So seventy-five dollars a day. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, for those, the ticket is most is very very coveted, and so what happens is we sell tickets. You can apply for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday tickets. The lottery, you go on lottery, <laughs> and you send it in. It's a random draw, and you get tickets. The the Thursday, Friday, Saturday ticket, the series badge is um, a subscription list that has been closed since 1978. So um, unfortunately, it's very hard to get a ticket because what has happened is people who have those tickets, they're able to will them to their spouse and then they're gone forever. And you're gonna understand here in a second when I talk about Berkman's Place, so we've created a new ticket. But what happens is the 80 and 90 year old person who has series badges and he or she is not gonna use those series badges knows that they can sell those, they can buy them from us for three twenty-five or whatever the number is, and they can immediately turn around and sell them for $10,000 a piece for the four days. So you, they write us a check for seven fifty. they turn around and make twenty grand. So there are some of them out in the market, we don't like it, but there are resellers out there, and you'll, you'll hear in a second why we got into Berkman's Place for one of those reasons. Yes, sir? Everything, it must be one of our three global partners. If you watch the Masters, it's IBM, it's Mercedes-Benz, and it's AT&T. And yes, we, we review those commercials for content. And most, in most cases, you'll know if you watch the Masters, some of them are even specific to the Masters. So an AT&T commercial, there's an AT&T commercial out there right now by, uh, with Jordan Spieth in it because he's one of their players. And so they'll, they'll uh, tailor. tailor it, thank you. The, uh, the, the commercial around the masters. All right, so scope. Uh, one of the things we don't do at Augusta National, we don't talk about dollars. Um, I will talk a little bit about volume, but we're not, one of the questions I wouldn't ask, if you ask how much, uh, how much money do we make, I wouldn't share that with you, because quite frankly, we don't think that's relevant. We don't think that's important. We're not trying to, how many people go to the masters? I'll, I always tell people, they'll say, how many people attend the masters? And I say, just the right amount, because again, <laughs> We're not trying to compete against another event, but I will tell you a little bit about scope to kind of put it into perspective. As I mentioned yesterday, there are 26 permanent kitchens on the property uh, that support member, player, sponsor, press, television, hospitality, concessions, and Berkman's Place. A la carte seating for approximately 2,700 guests at one time, and we'll turn those areas four to five times per day. So you can kind of do the math and figure out on any given day. And Monday and Tuesday are busier or as busy as Thursday and Friday. So our Monday, Unlike most places where they have a practice round and they kind of people kind of wade into it, we are just as busy on Monday as we are on a Saturday or Sunday. We serve breakfast, lunch, and afternoon snack and dinner in many locations, supported by 450 culinarians that are all workforce for one week and 1,425 service staff, waiters, bartenders, uh, uh, hostesses, things like that. And on average, we have two days to train the staff. Masters, can, yes, sir. I'm going to tell you that in a second. <laughs> We're going to cover that. Um, we also, uh, up until seven years ago, um, we did not oversee the concession operation. It was handled by a family who had done it since day one in, in Augusta, Georgia. Actually, it was out of Aiken. And when the gentleman retired, his son did, we didn't think his son was ready, nor did he think his son was ready to take it over. So 
Again, my boss called me in the office and said, okay, we're going to get in the concession business. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm just a little club guy. I know nothing about concessions. So I hired Levy Corporation out of Chicago to consult with me for a year along with the concessionaire to understand it. But concessions is a totally unique animal. This is all of the food and beverage. What John and I are going to talk about specifically is food and beverage inside the ropes. There's also a huge component if you are not allowed inside Berkman's Place or inside the clubhouse and you want to get a pimento cheese sandwich, that's this concession operation. So fun facts, uh, we'll serve uh, over 10 tractor trailloads of water for the week, 50,000 gallons of beer, 70 tons of ice. We'll produce 75,000 pounds of egg salad and pimento cheese. Give you an idea how many sandwiches it, it is. If you took a, every sandwich and lined it from here to Fort Myers and back, we'd still have a few left over. Um, in order to produce all the sandwiches, it requires 160. Again, all of the school systems, all the government offices. Augusta, Georgia is the smallest city in the world now that hosts a major sporting event. Major sporting events are not held in cities the size of Augusta, Georgia. So it shuts the town down. Houses are rented. rented. Um, people can rent their homes for you know, 15, 20, 30. I've, I know a, a friend of mine has a $100,000 home that he rents for that one week, tax-free. So he can rent it, he goes to the beach, gets a $100,000 check, some corporation rents it, and he moves out for the week. Pays his mortgage and his taxes. <laughs> so, um, because the school system is closed down, we hire custodians, but we also hire lunchroom ladies who are in the business of making stuff and sandwiches. And we hire 160 of them, and we have a former Kroger grocery store that we actually own now, and we've turned it into a commissary. So 160 ladies and gentlemen get in there, five people at a table, starting at 7 o'clock at night, and they start making sandwiches. And they'll make sandwiches from 7 o'clock at night until approximately 5 o'clock in the morning when everything other than the hot barbecue is moved across the street and put in the concession stand. All sandwiches are made fresh every day. We do not hold over any sandwich from one day to the next. Anything we don't use goes to soup kitchens, um, goes to um, homeless shelters, things like that. Digital and Press, this is a picture of our uh, uh, press facility. It uh, seats about uh, 700 people. Um, we also launched masters.com out of that. And one of the things they talked about here a few minutes ago was um, telling the story. I don't know if you've been on our website, but that's critically important to us that we tell the story. We, uh, because a lot of people will never make it to Augusta National. We want to tell the story of the Masters. We want, to, we want to show the beauty of the golf course. That's very, very important to us. Housekeeping services, there are about 500,000 square feet of space on the property. Um, again, no permanent restrooms. So just in restrooms alone, there's 500 fixtures that need to be cleaned. Every restroom is steam cleaned every single night. Um, professionally steam cleaned from top to bottom, and then there's a team of people that maintain them during the day. And as I said yesterday, ladies, we've designed them in such a way ladies will never stand in line at the, at the Masters to go to the restroom, which is quite a unique event. Even in the middle of the men's line moves pretty quick. Ladies' line is here, men's line is here, the ladies walking up, woohoo, boys! <laughs> transportation operation, John and I run the transportation operation both for the players and for our members. Procurement and distri distribution is a huge thing. And then merchandise is all Disney-like. In fact, we just hired about two years ago a gentleman by the name of Mark Prada that was over, worked at Disney and was over all of their merchandise for about uh, 15 years, yeah. something like that, yeah. and has completely transformed our merchandise operation. And there's, there's a shot of one of the areas. 
So why do we take it all on? I get this question asked a lot. Well, why don't you farm it out? Why don't you hire a levy? Why don't you hire somebody to do your restrooms? Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you? And at the end of the day, it's part of our culture. We don't believe that any outside organization will care as much about properly showcasing our product as we do. We believe, again, it might be arrogance, it might be ego, we just believe that we have a tendency to care more, more about people and the process than any outsider would. In pursuit of excellence, we'll take risks. I've, I've met with these companies and they don't want to take the risk. They want cookie cutter. They want the same menu that they serve at, the, at Shea Stadium or you know, the, the Dome. They want to bring it to Augusta, Georgia, and we're simply not going to do it. We're going to take risks. Um, and in some cases, we do things that might be fiscally imprudent or in some cases foolish. We also want as much control about over the outcome. We have more time spent. We have a tendency, as I said earlier, to spend more time dreaming about what could be far more than most people think is practical. People just simply say, I don't have time to dream. I don't have time to, to go there. Uh, let's keep it the same. Let's stick with portable toilets because it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to figure out how to build your own. We expect from our people that other think is possible, as I said earlier, and we, we know that we can do it better than a third party uh, provider or vendor. And the final reason we do it, because quite honestly, that's what John and I get paid to do. When I get my paycheck every, every other week, that's what they paid me to do. They paid us to innovate. They paid us to dream. They paid us to exceed expectations. They paid us to take risks, to challenge one another, and get people out of their comfort zone. <coughs> so what I'm going to quickly do is I'm going to talk about Berkman's Place, and I'm going to turn it over to John. What, what Craig asked me to do is just take one key component, and this is the newest thing that we've done at, Ber at uh, Augusta National. The reason we did this, up until five years ago, we did not have any upgraded hospitality on the property. The only people who entertained uh, in any type of upgraded hospitality were our sponsors, of which there are five, Mercedes-Benz, AT&T, IBM, Rolex, and United Parcel Service. Those are the only people that have private places on the property entertained. Even our members, because the clubhouse complex is rather small, there's only about 700 seats for dining, our members, we had to limit the number of tickets they could get. So a member just can't come up and say, give me 40 tickets to the Masters. They're limited to the number of tickets mm -hmm. they get. So consequently, if you were the chairman of the board of a big company, a GE or something like that, there was really no way for you to entertain at the Masters. So about 15 years ago, what happened on our perimeter, for those of you that have been there, we're on, I mean, Hooters is here, Kroger is there, Residential is here, and what happened was ticket operators and ticket brokers came into Augusta and they would buy Ladies Ranch House for $150,000, tear it down and build lot line, lot line, a three or four story facility that they said was a residence and wasn't, it was a hospitality facility. And then what they would do is go out in the secondary market and procure the ticket, serve you a steamship round and charge you 1,500 bucks a day. So this is, again, when I first started there, there were one or two of those. And we really didn't have any issues with it. You know, it wasn't a business we wanted to get in. We really didn't see the need to get in the business. But what happened over time, two went to four, four went to eight, eight went to 16. And there's now 16 of them around the property. Well, the problem was, as it got more competitive, they started to do crazy things. They would oversubscribe for tickets. A master's ticket, just warn you, a master's ticket is a commodity. So you could sit here today and buy that master's ticket from a reputable broker for $1,500 for a, for a Thursday ticket. 
and he'll promise you and he'll take your money for that $1,500 ticket. And you get there on Thursday to pick up your ticket and he's going to either say, I don't have your ticket or your ticket's no longer $1,500. Why? Because it's a commodity. It moves. So what was happening with these brokers is they couldn't control the ticket market. And unfortunately, one gentleman committed suicide. He had taken all these orders for tickets at one of these hospitality houses, and he didn't have the tickets. Or people that had promised him the tickets, the little old lady says, I'll sell you my tickets for 10 grand, all of a sudden somebody's gonna offer her 20. So that was one. It became a very dirty business on our perimeter. The second thing that happened was because it got competitive, they used our logo, they used our name. So if you're in Dubuque, Iowa, and you wanted to go to the Masters, and you go Googled Masters Hospitality or Masters Tickets, you didn't get us, you got them. And so what happened was they were saying, we. They had our logo. So if you didn't know any difference, you thought it was us. And you came there with a certain expectation that you were going to get treated the right way, that the, you were going to have service excellence that we talked about yesterday, and yet you're five blocks away in a, in a refurbished uh, ranch-style home with some master's artwork on the wall, and they're serving you steamship around and charging you $1,600, $1,800 a day to do it. So our membership finally came to us and said, this is nonsense. You're forcing, because you're not offering it, you're forcing us to go out and spend our money with unreputable, and by the way, not all of them are unreputable. Some of them are big, big ticket brokers. You know the name of them. But otherwise, there's a lot of people in Augusta, Georgia that week that are plumbers this week, and they're ticket brokers that week. They know nothing about the market, and they're just not sophisticated enough. So what we did five years ago, we finally convinced the chairman that we needed to be in this business. So we built this facility. Uh, John's going to go through quickly go through some slides to keep us on track to give you an idea of the scope. But it's 120,000 square foot facility, as I mentioned yesterday, on our property. So I'm gonna, we're going to talk. We aren't going to talk much about the place. We're going to show you the place. Then we'll talk about the people, and then we'll talk about the process. So I'll turn it over to John for, for this part of the presentation. Unless anyone has any questions. Where's the name come from? The Berkman family, man, I'll tell you what, finding the names for these places is crazy because everything needs to tie back to the club. We wouldn't have just called it the hospitality facility. Berkman family was the family that owned the nursery. That's the property that, the, that became the club uh, was the Berkman's nursery. So we tell history, you'll see it here in a second as you walk through the facility. So this is a picture of the entrance. And I'll let you go through all this, John. So uh, maybe just quickly before we go uh, get started, I'll let you get to know me just a little bit. Uh, my name is John Johnston, 48 years old, born and bred in Glasgow, Scotland, where we invented golf. So <laughs> the Masters does it well, but we still invented it. Uh, but uh, I, I worked my way through Glasgow down into London, London over into France, working in Michelin star restaurants. Came to America 24 years ago. I had a great opportunity, and uh, it's a bit of a story, but I, I won't bore you with it. But stayed a year, didn't like America. It's too big. I couldn't understand it. It was just way beyond anything I could scale. So I went back to Paris, opened up Euro Disney. Uh, while I'd been in America, I'd applied for my green card. I'm now in Paris, it's a year and a half later, and I'm working in a five-star hotel at Euro Disney, and my green card comes through. I don't know if, you're, if you know, if you get a green card comes through, you get 90 days to be a resident in America and to be tax-paying, or you lose it. It's done. So I had a decision to make. Came back to America. Uh, 
went to the Greenbrier. Was at the Greenbrier for a couple of years. Uh, from Greenbrier, went to New York. Um, I was chef at Tavern in the Green in New York. Uh, from New York, joined the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company, where I worked for 12 years. Uh, I started at the property level uh, in Phoenix, then opened up Reynolds Plantation. During that time, uh, 34, I got my Master Chef certification. I think, it, I think at the time I was the youngest. Uh, then went to Naples, the flagship of Ritz-Carlton. Uh, big, big property, big, big revenues, $37 million a year in food and beverage alone, $100 plus million property. Oversaw both the properties there, Tiburon as well, of course you know as a golf course. Uh, then from there went back to the Greenbrier as vice president of food and beverage. Stayed there a couple of years and then was recruited back into Ritz-Carlton at the corporate level where I was uh, vice president of international operations. What does that mean? I ran all the hotels, all the operating departments. Uh, so everything outside of finance, HR, and sales. I ran those for Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Australasia. So office was in Chevy Chase, but I was in the other part of the world 28 days a month. Uh, got a call from Jim one day. I'm in Doha in the Middle East. Jim asked me to come and talk to him. So five years later, I'm still here. Best phone call I ever made. Worst phone call I ever took. <laughs> <laughs> because I told him the first, the first week on the job, I said, John. No, he lied to me. He said he told me. No, it's a, it's I lied to him. He lied to me. Uh, because I did, we didn't know Berkman's place was online. The only person that knew we might do this was our chairman. So the chairman says, you just go out and hire some guy who really understands volume. I thought, this is kind of crazy. You know, We're all right with the volume we're doing. And I told John, I lied to him. Yeah. I told John, I said, um, John, I'm really worried. I mean, you're a high-powered executive coming to work in little old Gus, Georgia. I said, I'm not sure there's going to be enough meat on the bone. Well, consequently, he <laughs> yeah. reminds me every single day. You and your I've never found the bone. <laughs> I'm looking for, you know. So, so uh, Berkman's Place, um, official hospitality program yeah. of the Masters. I'm going to, we're going to quickly go through these slides, this deck, but it'll give you a feel for it. I'm not going to read everything, or John, you can certainly yeah, touch on these points. But again, it's for our members primarily. Before we broke ground, we pulled the members and said, if we do this, would you be interested? 100% of them said yes. We also then expanded it to what we call our friends of the family. These are people that have long-standing relationships with the club, the Easy Goes, SunTrust Bank. We went to them and said, if we did this, would you do it? EasyGo was using those facilities I just talked about in a big way, 40, 50, 60 tickets they were buying. They said, how quickly can you build it? And so before we ever turned over our first shovel of dirt, we had sold out. So we had made some dent on the perimeter. Some of these places that, that were not strong enough, they have failed. That was not our goal. That's just been the outcome. So by design, it's by invitation only, essentially friends and family. Can I ask, has anybody been to Berkman's Place? Has anybody here been? All right, so there's a couple folk that have been. So this was, the, we built it in four different phases because it was such, such a massive project. The first project is called the Pavilion. 
This is an indoor and outdoor dining venue. Probably still my favorite because this picture alone shows you that you can have alfresco dining inside. The floors are heated, it's cooled, and, but you're sitting inside looking outside onto everything that is Augusta National. So it's, it's, it's a favorite for everybody because you get to see what Augusta is all about. Ike's, obviously named after one of our famous members and, and the past president, it's our southern restaurant. 288 seats in there. Uh, very diverse in its design, but still very southern. Uh, everything inside, all the desserts we do from inside uh, the actual restaurant, so you can see the desserts being made. Coffee station, the barista station's also in there. The 288 seats, 60 seats outside, the rest of the seats inside. And you've got some formal area, which is on carpet. You've got some hardwood areas. You have the bar area. And then, of course, there's our outdoor dining. And again, because television viewing at 4 o'clock or even earlier is critically important, you're going to see in every one of these slides plenty of televisions. You, you're, you don't go into any of these restaurants and sit in a seat where you're not able to view the telecast. Okay, so outdoor patio dining, looking on to, to our four putting greens, which are three of them are identical replicas of three of the greens on the course. The fourth is, is a compilation uh, with five different, five to six different holes on there that you can we'll put We'll show on. you a few pictures here. We'll show you some of that. Calamity Janes. It, it was originally, when we concepted it, a burger slash raw bar and was absolutely so successful that just last year we took the raw bar component out of it and we'll talk about that in a bit. So right now I turned it back into a, a Sunday station. We always serve Sundays in there. So it was great burgers, great traditional American Sundays, and this is the new Sunday bar for that. Now, wanted to show you a little bit about some of the, the, the equipments in there. Why we are so effective and so efficient is because every piece of equipment that's in there has been purpose-built for a very specific design. So there is nothing in there for fluff. Everything is in there because it's absolutely needed. And I, when, I, when, I, when I designed these, I went through every single menu item and then designed the kitchen around the menu item, which meant I knew where every single piece would go you would never have to leave, you heard Jim talk about a box. Stood in the box, they get a box. That's their space. So everything should be at their hands. They should never have to walk anywhere for anything. We talk about three and a half minute ticket times, and that's cooked a la minute. That's from when you order your, your food to it comes back to you. And there's a lot of very simple things that we do that allow us to, to, to to supply our food service delivery in that manner. You can see in here, cement floor, again, different types of dining, open kitchen in there, also 288 seats, 60 seats outside as well. The other thing is each of the restaurants are themed about an iconic person or thing at Augusta National, so Calamity Jane, for those who <coughs> don't know, was Bobby Jones's putter that he used when he won the Grand Slam of golf that we personally have in our collection. But you'll notice in all of these spaces, we've used artwork, artifacts, things that we own to kind of bring the 
the experience into the space. So it's not just televisions, it's other, it's other things. You know, yesterday when we talk about place, this is the place. And when you're in there, you should have a sense of what's coming to you. If you're sitting in a space where you really don't know what it's about and you can't put your finger on it, uh, that's when you've lost the sense of place. So when we speak about place, this is you know where you are, and fundamentally, you already know what to expect. Sir? Is that a picture during the Masters, or would that be like a typical day? No, this is only open the week of the Masters. Yeah, this but, building yeah. shuts down. It's open for about 10 days. It's shut down. Now, unfortunately, for people who live in Augusta, Georgia, they've now seen it. These are probably five. There aren't a lot of restaurants in Augusta. Five nicest restaurants are in the building. But this building is, is mothballed right now. You, we couldn't, it would take us weeks before we'd be able to, to uh, start serving product in this building. Yes, sir? Uh, it's close to gate nine. Gate for those nine. of you who know property, there's an old parking lot. We've taken both of our parking lots. At one time, we had parking for about 5,000 cars on the property. And some of you are facing this in your clubs. Uh, if you're looking at land acquisitions and what we had to do, so we had to displace five, almost 6,000 cars off the property in two different parking lots. What we had to do in order to do that was we had to go buy land. But 15 years ago, there was no land. It was a residence. It was a residential neighborhood of single family homes. And we literally started 15 years ago going door to door, knocking on doors, sitting down with little old ladies and young folks and saying, we want to buy your house. We were very open. We were very upfront. And we bought them all. We bought 100, about 100 parcels of property that are now contiguous with the club and made some people very wealthy. Um, <laughs> And especially the last few that were the holdouts. <laughs> the first guy not feeling too good. The last guy's feeling great. He's probably come down to Florida and member one of your clubs. Yes, sir. I have a question for John. John, you say you build a kitchen based on when you need it. Uh -huh. Back then, have you changed the many since? Or how often do you do it? No, because in, in the, you change the oysters. Well, we changed that concept, okay. so we can talk about that. But it ties back to we're only open for seven days a year. That's it. So th it's not a menu that you're going to get tired of. And the average <laughs> patron is not in this building for the seven days. They may only have one day to visit the facility. So three days are for training. I receive the staff on a Friday. Uh, Monday we go live through the following Sunday. What I'm going to do, and yep. I'm, hopefully they'll make them all around if you make it quick, I'm going to put, take yep. the menus just so you can see. I'll start them here. You pass them around to the next table so you can get a flavor for the menus. Again, in designing the menus, we wanted them to look like any other menu. We didn't want just one sheet that had eight items. So you'll see when you look at these menus. Yes. But to answer John's question, John and I are not interested in changing the menu too much. We will change a little. The problem is we don't have the final say. There's a gentleman that's a chairman that will decide if we, at some point if we change the menu. He's pushed us on a few areas where there are certain things. But the menu mix you'll see here in a second is... Is great. Calamity Jane, or excuse me, McKenzie's. McKenzie's, Scottish pub. Very, very traditional Scottish pub. So it's in this rotunda uh, where all of the restaurants have their own space. Uh, again, you would, I, I, I laugh at Jim and we joke that uh, I had to come to America to find the best Scottish pub that I've ever <laughs> been in. And I've been in a few Scottish pubs, uh, but the best Scottish pub exists in this facility. 
For those of you who don't know, McKenzie yeah. was the golf course yeah. designer. Alistair McKenzie, so again, has all of his original drawings of the club, the first picture of certain greens. You saw his portrait there. We've really tried to tie into the space. Yeah. Um, there's his portrait up there. The tartan that we have on the, on the chair is actually the tartan from the McKenzie family. So we've really tried to, to, again, to John's point, you really understand where you are. You feel like you're in a Scottish pub and you'll see the menu. Um, things like sticky toffee pudding, bangers and mash, uh, shepherd's pie, things like that are on this menu. Everything that's in every restaurant is very, very authentic to its concept. We're not trying to do any, anything frilly anything gastronomic, it's not what it's about. It's about being completely authentic in its concept, in its design, in its decor, in its overall presentation, and especially in its menu. I have fish and chips in the menu here, just like you would have back home. There's malt vinegar with it, just like you would have back home. So again, it's not to overly impress, it's just to, to deliver what you would expect it to be flawlessly. Uh, again, in this bar, uh, single malts. Maybe we should preface, everything in here is free. You don't pay for anything in here. You can sit from 10 in the morning to 7 at night and drink single malt whiskey, and it doesn't cost you a dime. It's included and in the price of the ticket. The ticket is, to put it in perspective, the ticket is $7,500 for the week. So you get a ticket for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You write us a check for $7,500 per ticket. So you can start, what's that? So there's no cash There's a huge wait list. So there's yeah. no cash yeah. changes in. No so cash if you're, at all. So if you're a corporation and you want to entertain your clients at a very high level and you don't necessarily want to be there, I could send two tickets to my, my best client in Los Angeles and two to my best client in Dallas or Denver, and they show up and they go to the Masters and they experience this without ever pulling any money out of their pocket. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Gus, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Once you once you have the ticket, you have access, and you can walk in through the front, and essentially, you will go to whatever venue you choose to, and everyone that comes in pretty much will go to every single venue. <laughs> I mean, if you have a ticket, we we're serving pretty much each guest will eat 3.2 times, so he'll visit every single restaurant at different stages of the day. Uh, Augustus, we took the raw bar component and we, we expanded upstairs to a 230-seat, very, very traditional New Orleans restaurant. Part of that is a raw bar in which we serve 40, 42,000 oysters last year. So my guys are opening just about 7,000 oysters a day, all day long. Uh, the bar in there is about 60 foot long. That's the, that's the oyster Oops. bar right there. Uh, regular bar, across the other side from it is the oyster bar. And then again, we have a show kitchen in there, which is all the traditional things that you would expect to get. There's a great hoagie on there. There are great fried oysters on there. Uh, etouffee. Etouffee, gumbo, redfish, all done classically. My chef for there was raised in New Orleans, worked for Paul Prudhomme, so it is authentic, as authentic as you can get outside of New Orleans. As you can see from the decor there, a lot of iron, uh, and again, 
we, this is a good picture actually. Those three, that you can only see two of them, two openings against the wall there. Uh, those, those were designed uh, for each of, of, of our three significant Masters champions, you know, Nicholson, uh, Palmer, Palmer, and Player. And, so and each player. one of those, there's, there, there's windows there, and so there's big booths yeah. there, and all of that artwork is, is based around, so Eden, Palmer has an area, and Nicholas yeah. has an area, Player has an area, so as you sit in there, it's kind of their life at the Masters yeah. from, the first, from their first wins until, uh, you know, even yeah. more recent times. And the table numbers are after the amount of wins as well. <laughs> so just, again, to be authentic. Uh, the other thing, too, real quick, we are very concerned about putting retail, this restaurant, on the second floor of the building. Because as most of you probably know, it's very hard to get people upstairs. So one of the things we did was created this wonderful entrance that you really, you walk in and you say, I have an elevator or you have a big stairway. So it's, uh, quite frankly, this became, quickly became the most popular restaurant. Now some of it had to do with the, with the offerings, but also some of it had to do with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, the decor. Yeah, part of, part of the facility is, is a luxury uh, merchandise <coughs> operation. Now, the store here has items that you cannot get in the course. So again, this is custom tailored apparel, which is purely for the Berkman's experience. So again, you're, you're adding a different level of service, a different level of product. Uh, and and, and this, is, this has been so popular. Uh, I skipped over a little bit on the merchandise slide, but, but we, we source all of our own merchandise. So most of it's under our brand. Now we will partner with, with very high-end brands like Tiffany, like Dooney and Bork, like Mont Blanc, to offer those kind of things in very limited supply in shops like this throughout the ground. So uh, you'll notice in this case, you can see some Tiffany there, um, but that's done on a very, very limited basis. Uh, but uh, otherwise, everything is, is sourced by us, uh, by our merchandise team. Just the right number. From a staffing standpoint, don't you have, like, for example, Peter Millar, have their staff come in and yes. do that? That's right. yeah. Yes, they'll have some of their staff at their areas. Correct. We hire enough to start with, but Peter Millar, the Tiffany's, the people like that, they'll work those areas. So if somebody comes up specifically and asks about one of those high-end items, there's somebody that who really, really understands that product. There's a full-service business center because, as I said, we don't allow cell phones. Yeah, which, is, which was brand new for us as well. Uh, now you have the ability to be able to nip in there, check your emails, check your voicemail, make a very quick call. There's a small conference center off there. If you needed to actually have an emergency meeting, there's a small conference room there that will seat about eight, and you can go in there and have that quite that quite that quick meeting. This is the welcome area, so it's it's part of the our, our, our grand entrance. A lot of people will come there to meet and greet before they start to walk through the rest of the facility. This is uh, the library area of that. A lot of memorabilia in there, but Bobby Jones. So, walking down the corridor. Uh, again, more memorabilia. Uh, there's, there's really the story of the Berkman's family. Uh, of course, there's the, 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 the trophy case with, with uh, all Grand the, Slam all trophies. The Grand Slam. And part of, part of that walkway is a lot of the original correspondence from Bobby Jones to Mr. Roberts and Alistair McKenzie as they started to build the course. A lot of the pictures that are on that wall are as 
they're starting to design it, bulldoze it, tear it up. Bobby John's standing there making practice shots before, before it ever was anything. So it, it's historically, it's a great way to learn a little bit about the masters. So that again adds another layer uh, for, for, for the patron to come and just appreciate who we are. We, we heard this morning about Gen, Gen Y and experiential things that they look for. And so it was very important to us, originally we were gonna have a putting green. And the concept was batted around, you know, does it need to be in synthetic putting green? What does it need to look like? We made the decision, the conscientious decision to build replica putting greens. So these are actually holes on the golf course at tournament speed where people can walk up, get a putter, get a ball, and go out to these practice greens that are replicas. There's three of them in this area, seven, 14, 16. And then as John said, there's a composite green. I'll show you here in a second where Fazio actually took five greens, put them into one so you can experience the, the undulations in the green, the speed of the green, things like that. The, the, um, the other green, we actually issue a scorecard and you can play six mm -hmm. holes and your three buddies can go out there and although we don't uh, encourage betting, you'll, they'll do a little betting on the, on the putting course. And again, you get a caddy. Yeah, our caddies, are, our caddies manage this space. They help you read the green uh, so you can understand how the, the speed of the greens and things like that. You'll see here in this picture, there's a, a gentleman with a green jacket on. There are about um, 12 members on the hospitality committee that actually work this space. So as you arrive in this space, they are welcoming you, they're answering questions, they're ambassadors, they're thanking you for coming. They're part of this whole thing. So they're out there um, asking you how you're doing, can I get you anything? Um, very, very, very high level of service uh, that the chairman, quite frankly, takes very serious. If you're appointed one of these 15 people, you will do your job. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So um, They're a critical part of setting the expectations. So as you enter in the morning at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, you will get a warm welcome from maybe Lynn Swan, maybe Condoleezza Rice. You want a photo? You'll get a photo. But when you leave at the end of the day at 7.30 at night, you'll get a fond farewell also from a green jacket. This is uh, the entrance. We have a private entrance which uh, through gate 9 will take you off. You will, you will get a wristband uh, and you gain entrance right into Berkman's place right off of gate nine. The, the ticketing process, and I'll pass these around as well because I'm gonna talk about this, but there's, there's, there's tickets here. The couple of unique things, I'll talk about this here in a second in a little greater detail. All these tickets have an RFID chip in them. For those of you who don't know what RFID is, we can track movement of this ticket. So as people move into the facility, we know at any given time how many people are in the complex. We know how many people are leaving the complex. But then this is also tied for security measures because I can't have Craig who comes in in the morning, decide he wants to go out and give it to John in the afternoon. So once this ticket is enrolled, when you go through that space, this ticket is enrolled, and you're put on a, a wristband that has a microchip in it as well that matches this ticket to that band. So he can't walk out and all of a sudden tear off his band and give somebody a ticket. You must have the ticket with, why? Because we sold, we sold you food and beverage for the entire day and we can't have people uh, swapping these tickets. So. Um, and Jim, and to that point, when we talk about technology, we get a ping on our cell phone as the increments start to go up. So once we hit 500, once we hit 750, 
once we hit 1,000, that ping will go to the key executive leadership so that they know how, how many patrons are actually within the facility. Now, that may mean the, they're on the, on the putting course, they're in the restaurants, they're in the merchandise, but we'll know exactly how many folk are within the two gates of Berkman's Place at all times. And I think there's great application for clubs on this. And I'll talk about parking here, this parking pass in a second, but there's amazing things you can do with this technology. For an example, <clears throat> this is the parking sticker. So if you have parking, you put this in your van or your vehicle. This also notifies, I know because there's RFID and I know exactly who that van belongs to. And I'll talk a little bit more in detail. So if you had an entrance in your club and you wanted to put RFID in a little sticker that was on their car, you could know that Mr. Jones and Mrs. Smith have just entered the gates of your club. So now we'll start talking about the people. We'll go quickly through this and then we'll get to the process. Now, th this is where it gets different. Uh, this is my org chart for the people. In every single restaurant, I'll have typically three chefs. So we, I have a head chef and two sous chefs. But the sous chefs are not sous chefs. They're all head chefs. They're all executive chefs from, from quite frankly, your facilities, from the best hotels, from the best restaurants, from Canada, from Scotland. My Scottish restaurant, I bring in a Scottish chef. If I want it to be authentic, I gotta bring in a Scottish chef. So I have a team of leadership for this building which consists of about 750 staff. Now that's 750 just employees which are uh, assisting with the services, but there is a whole entourage of other support that we have. It's 120,000 square foot. There are multiple kitchens, and we cannot afford for one single piece of equipment to go down. So to ensure that that doesn't happen or that we have resolution immediately to it, we have an entourage of MEP professionals, electricians, elevator professionals, Every single mechanical piece is covered by another team that are sitting upstairs, probably 25 of them, sitting on call, waiting for me to say, my fridge went down, my pilot went out, my fryer stopped working. So where do we get our, our 750 staff? We go to these colleges. We, we purposely recruit culinarians that are in the business to become great chefs. I go with, with the executive chef of Berkman's Place and I interview personally every single culinarian and every single server, every single dishwasher that comes into the facility, every single manager that comes into the facility. I, I meet with them personally and what am I looking for in, in staff? Two things, for culinary, I'm looking for experience, because if they worked a line before, obviously that, that, that's incredibly valued to me because I know that they can deal with the pressure. So I'm looking for that. Where it differs slightly is for the service folk. I'm not looking for experience. Experience is, is a bonus. What I'm looking for is one thing, a huge smile. I don't care if someone's got 10 years of service experience, when I sit and meet with them, and these are quick meetings, these are quick interviews, they last 10 minutes. If they do not smile, and if their smile is not contagious, I'm not interested in them. I don't wanna know. 
I can teach them anything. I cannot teach them to smile. So I'm looking for that contagious smile, which I know will be permeable to the patrons that come in there. Oysters here. Okay, let's talk about that. 60% of those are returning. By the way, that's club-wide. That's yeah. from the guy cleaning the restroom to making the sandwich. 60% yeah. of these people come back year after year. We'll have kids that, I started this 10 years ago. I went to University of South Carolina Hospitality School. I went to the club management group, and I got 12 employees. Last year, we got 650 employees, students, from the hospitality program at University of South Carolina which is hotel, restaurant management, sports management, we bus them in. We have buses at the stadium. They go there at 5 o'clock in the morning. They get on a bus. They come to work at Augusta National. They go home that night. Um, so we have to get resourceful because somebody asked a question about housing. We, we simply don't have enough housing for people. The, a day's in room that is $50 tonight will quickly go the week of the tournament to five fifty, six hundred bucks a night. So we can't afford to put all these people up in, in, in houses. I'm sorry, John. No, it's okay. The, the, but there are key personnel, the culinarians, that we do house. And they, we go pick them up. We transport them from New Orleans up to Augusta. They will share accommodations in a hotel room, two per hotel room, and that's very spe specific for the culinarians because we know that, that without them, without that expertise and that skill, you know, we cannot be successful. The service team, we can get much more locally. And they typically have family or a resource close by where they can go and stay. Or they will do just like our members do. They will all get together as a group and they will rent a, ho a home and they will sleep on floors, sleep on beds. I mean, they, they, they figure it out. Big Baby here. This is Big Baby. That's his name. That's what he likes to be called, Big Baby. Number one oyster shucker in New Orleans, the champion down there. Knowing that I'm going to open over 40,000 oysters in a week, I need to bring the best. So I go to the best. I speak to Dickie. He's a good friend, has been for a long time. And I ask him to give me his top oyster guys for the 10 days. They come down here, we take care of them, and that smile, he has that smile from the day one to the end when he leaves a week later. Uniforms, let's talk about uniforms. Again, it, it's, not a, it's not fancy, it, it, but we supply seven uniforms, seven pair of pants, seven jackets, seven aprons, for all of, our, all of our staff, that is, if you start to do the math, we bring in 2,000 employees, and they all get seven pieces, top to bottom. Before you know it, that's a massive issue. Storage, cleaning. A big issue for me was, was to create a sense of place for the service team uh, and, and to, to really have them fit into the environment. But more importantly, when you've got 2,000 employees and they all look the same, you, you don't know if they're in the right place. So what I wanted to do was 
I wanted to color code them <laughs> so that I knew that if you're in green and you're over in the red space, you're in the wrong place. The biggest issue that we have, tournament's busy, but the biggest headache we have is on Friday morning when 2,000 people come at you and you've got to figure out where they're working. That volume is one thing, but that's not our biggest issue. Uh, we have much more complex issues that, than, than volume. All of the culinarians, all in black. Every other restaurant, they have a chef's jacket, which corresponds to the venue that they're in. If you can hit that button, Jim. Uh, yes, processes. sir. Let's, oh, processes. Yes, sir. Do you have a question? Okay, go <laughs> going to get to that. That's under this process here. So if you hit that button, process. Ah, okay. Jim put that up in there because <laughs> the, when, we, when, we, when we really started to concept uh, Berkman's Place, there was, there was no palette whatsoever for anything a la carte. And I was fortunate enough to get Jim to put his job on the line and stand behind us doing something that had never been done before, not only at Augusta National, but really in the sporting world. And it still hasn't to this point. But it has proved through our people, through our sense of place, and through our product excellence that we have a one-of-a-kind facility that, quite frankly, is unbenchmarkable. Now, let me see here. We do have buffets. We, 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 for clever, we, we have buffets yeah. in two restaurants for breakfast. What breakfast we found only. was yeah. breakfast is important to people and what guys want, and about uh, two-thirds of our audience are gentlemen. What they want is they just want a big, hearty breakfast. They want to go through a line. So, again, in two of the restaurants, we have buffets. In the other two restaurants, we have, we have a la carte. Yeah, one of the goals for me was... This venue should house five different restaurants that if you were in Chicago and you say, what are the best restaurants in town, that these would feel and look and deliver on that. That's what I was looking for. You were in Manhattan and you want to go to a great burger bar. What would it look like? And that's what we brought to Augusta. We, we do know that all of our staff, I mean, really abundantly, uh, predominantly in the food service, uh, they're all college students. Uh, we target specific areas so that we can get them. We go there, we personally interview them. We go there, we do this pitch. We show them the facility. We give them the expectations. We tell them honestly that this will be the hardest 10 days of work that you will probably ever have in your career because they're working 110 and 120 hours. They come to me on Friday, and by Monday afternoon, some of them are going into overtime. Now, that's great for them, because every hour afterwards, they're making some, some good bank. They don't come for the money. Another question I ask them, why do you want to be at the Masters? Why do you want to work at the Masters? And the, the all will to a person tell you, I want to be part of what the mystique is. I want to learn how to do it. I want to see how it's done. And that's why we bring them in. That's why experience is not the most important. Enthusiasm, having common sense, 
These are the things, these are the founding blocks that allow us to train them in two days. If they don't have a willingness to learn, if they don't smile, if they don't have a positive attitude, I can't teach them. I can talk at them, but I can never really connect with them. Uh, I think we spoke to you a little bit about the concepts. Yeah, we talked about the speed. There's eight items and only eight items. Now, um, that, that's critical, the eight items, because, again, the kitchen is built around that. Now, Jim had mentioned yesterday we do the tastings for the chairman. Now, chairman's not necessarily someone that you want to say no to if you have a mortgage. Uh, but, but in many cases, you know, I've had to stand in front of him and say, no, we can't do that. It's very important to know your breaking point. And as professionals, you have to be smart about knowing how far to take it. But too far, the wheels come off. And then you fail. So our recipe, and I, I boil everything down to a recipe. That's my past. And I know that if you follow the recipe and you follow the process, you will have an expected outcome. And it will be consistent. And if you practice it enough, you will become very quick at delivering that. So I boil everything down to that basic fundamental, is that there is a recipe for everything. There's a recipe for service. There's a recipe for production. And there's a recipe for food service delivery. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have three days to train. I get them on a Friday morning. 10 o'clock Friday morning, uh, they will come to me. What we'll do is we'll welcome them. We'll take them into the facility. We'll very quickly orient them through all the HR piece, and then we'll get them upstairs. And again, we train them to one or two core competencies. We don't try, we're not looking to train a waiter on the 50 steps of service. Your job is to do this. Your job is to take the order, get it to the point of sale operator. You'll hear about this in a second because we can't train 650 waiters how to use point of sale in one day. What do we have? You'll see it in here in a second. 24 point of sale operators. They all make a flat rate. As John said, most of them are going to work about 92 hours, but as John also said, they don't do it for the paycheck. To a person, they will tell you they do it because it's something, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, and quite frankly, they put it on their resume. It's the one thing that they will tell you, whether they're meeting with the Marriott's or the Ritz-Carlton's, it immediately starts a conversation with the recruiter. We also, at the end of the event, immediately, within a couple of days, send out a survey to all 3,000 employees and say, how did we do? And this year we had about 60% of them told us how we did. Some said we did well, some said we didn't, but as a, in an organization that is all about perpetual improvement, that's incredibly important for us to know. We want to know as an employer whether we employ you for 52 weeks or employ you for one week. We want to know how we do as an employer. And a critical part of that is choosing the right leadership. And when I meet with them the week prior, because they'll come several days in advance, we let them know very clearly that there's the right way to deliver our services and there's a right way to train our staff. And it's it's the Augusta National Way, it's the Southern Way, it is with a hug. There's not going to be any foul language, there's not going to be any egos, there's going to be none of that. It just is not tolerated. If we see it, it's out the door absolutely immediately. And I will tell you, one of the hardest things for people 
like yourselves in this room, your executive chefs, is they want to come in and change our process. And it is absolutely non-negotiable. We don't care whether they're a CMC or a CCM. Well, I'll give you an example. John hired, a, a, we hire club chefs. And the guy comes in to Ike's, and John has all the mise en place set up based upon how we're going to do it. And the guy decides he doesn't like how it's set up. So he starts moving stuff around. Now, you probably haven't picked up with this guy, but he'll quickly put you in line. He shut the restaurant down and said, it goes back the way I set it up. I set it up for a reason. So one of the, when John talks about ego, we'll get club managed. Well, we do it this way at our club. I really don't care. If you have a great idea, we'll talk about it after the event. But the time to talk about it is not on Monday morning when we have thousands and thousands of people showing up for lunch. You will do it our way. Now, we are not always, as I said, we don't always get it right. That's why I love sessions like this, because I learn as much from you as you'll learn from me. But at, when you get there on Monday morning, or on, in this case, Thursday, it's made very clear both in the club operations area and in this area, don't try and change our process. If you can't live with our process, you need to let us know right now and go home. Now, we have very few that ever leave us. It's not a question that, that I'm right, but it is a question that, Everything has been built upon those processes. So all of a sudden, you see here that there's, there's almost 50 leaders in this area, restaurant managers, chefs, beverage managers, executive stewards. If everybody comes in and they want to run it like they do at their club, we will fail miserably because we have been purpose designed to run it our way. So what I ask them to do is to use their skills for problem resolution, absolutely. But when it comes to the food service delivery and the food service production, follow the plan. Do not deviate from the plan. It's not negotiable. If we want to change the plan, we'll talk about it next Monday. And if you can convince me that there is a better way, then we are going to change the plan. There is no doubt about it. But once, once we agree on it, once we nod heads and shake hands, this is how we're going to roll. The staff, again, I said earlier, we hire smiles, not experience. And if you can see from those folk back oh, there, oops. they're all smiling. Now, it's easy to get a smile out of them on Monday morning because <laughs> they haven't really done much. But by Thursday, they're hurting. Their feet are hurting. They're in agony. Every single one to a point us included, are very, very tired by Thursday. And we haven't even really started yet. So if they, if they are not natural smilers, by Thursday, their attitudes will change because now they're fatigued. Now they're under pressure. It's still four days away. So it's very important that we hire attitude because that's what will prevail when the chips are down and when they start to get fatigued. We have a menu here, you've seen the menus we passed around, but again, the concept here is we wanted people to feel like we were delivering a very high quality product and there was a great selection. So all of our menus are three and four page menus for, for the most part with a lot of selections. And you can see, we, we added some, some, just a little bit of the pictures in here. Again, we're not doing anything that's over the top. We're just doing everything that, is, that would really be what you would expect to be when it comes to your table. Uh, I will tell you that in all the positions as well, they're very, very, very defined. The busser 
only does two things. Sets the table, buses the table, bumps the table. Bumping the table means he opens it back up in the POS. That's all he does. The server takes your order and delivers the ticket to the POS operator. Now, there's about 400 servers. The last thing that we could do is start to try and train 400 servers the POS. We just couldn't do it. So we have dedicated POS folk. I think you saw a, 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 mem a, a pad, an order pad go through there. I didn't, that's sitting yeah, over here. That, but no, there's an order I'll, pad I'll that's I'll pass an order. I have a pre-described order pad. Here, let me see it, Jim. I'll just explain it. This is the order pad. How do, how do we become fast? It's right here. It's, it's a duplicate system. I've got, you, you would say, well, you're going to train all these people in two days. Surely you probably don't do your seating numbers. You probably don't want to touch any of this up. Yes, you better believe it. We have seating numbers. But I created the pad so that they can start at position one, and they write the order in at position one going down. All of the beers are here. All of the soft drinks are here. So they don't have to handwrite anything. They take a box. Someone wants a go position one, tick the box. Someone wants the beer, tick the box. So it can go from position one through position eight. They tear one off, it goes into the POS operator. They go straight to the bar. By the time they get to the bar, the POS operator's already ordered in the ticket. Their drinks are waiting for them. They pick up the drink, they go right back to the table, deliver the drink within 90 seconds. Then they turn the pad over, and there's the food. Bars on one side, food's in the other. Seat arrangements, one through eight. And that's how we do it. They rip it off, deliver it in, POS, we deliver the food. So, yes, sir? How do you handle special requests? Like, how do you get a lot of Luckily, these most of them aren't members. You know, no. we, 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 we have the same. We probably don't have it in the same volume, uh, but we will handle them the same way as you will. We will honor every single special request that we can. We, we say yes. Now, if it's something we don't have, we don't have it, but we will, we will deal with it the exact same way as you do, just in, in, in a much larger volume. Now, bear in mind, from, 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 from the, the service floor, I have a food runner. That food runner has X many tables. Servers, there's one per eight guests. Food runners, there's one per 24. Bussers, there's one per 16. And they have certain quadrants. Now, if I get a server that's got a great personality, she's fantastic, but she's just not very quick, I will give her four guests, and she will have one table for the entire week, and that's all she can do. I don't want to lose her. She's great, but maybe she's just not as productive as someone else. Then you get a superstar that can handle 12, so she'll pick up the slack. But all of the restaurant is, it's all in quadrants, and there is a traffic flow. Once you pick up the food, the food runners know where to drop the food, and they will follow a traffic pattern. They never change the pattern, because I don't want people bumping into each other. The room is separated. I divide and conquer. How do you, how do you deal with really big things? You break them down into really small things. Real simple. So they deliver the food. They drop it at the food 
drop-off area, the server picks up the food. Server never leaves their table. They're always there. So you have 100% service all the time. You have that young lady, that young gentleman smiling at you. What can I get you? And all of the time, everything is coming to them. As soon as you've got up, the bus boy, he steps in, he buses the table, bumps it in the system, it tells the front reception that now we have a, a table available and now we start all over again. In the kitchen, each one of the chefs has a responsibility. One dish, that's all they do. Everything is laid out in the order that it goes in the pan for super efficiency. We turn the tickets over, you see here. Here's a little thing, let's talk about POS. Uh, I don't have any tickets. I spent all my life in the kitchen, 20, 23 years in the kitchen, picking dupes out of the machine and halving it because it won't go in the dupe holder, putting it in the dupe holder, then calling out two beef, two this, blah, blah, blah. And nobody's doing anything. The clock is ticking, nothing is happening. Nobody is doing a thing because we're using this antiquated system of order in and fire. So I'm driving through McDonald's one day, and I say, no, I, I'm, I, I worked in three-star Michelin rest, restaurants all my life, the best, the best. I'm driving through McDonald's, and I look at the screen and I'm thinking, why don't we do that? Why are we printing paper to communicate? So I decided there's not gonna be any talking in the kitchen anymore. There's no order in. What we do is each of the chefs gets their VDU screen. POS person punches it in. If you're on the muscle station, your screen will pop up one muscles. Now, if it's a table of eight, you don't see all eight. You only see one muscles, two muscles, 10 muscles, 12 muscles. As it's fired, it deducts the amount of muscles that are coming off. So you know all day. Remember the all day? How many all day? Well, let me count. I got one over here and I got one over. There's no all day. It's right on the screen. <laughs> you know, 12, two went, I get 10. It tells me 10. So you're always moving forward. And because you have such volume, you're just, you're just rotating all of the time. You're not waiting. So people say, well, a three and a half minute ticket time. That's ridiculous. I'll tell you what's ridiculous. 28 second oyster time is ridiculous. We put our oysters out in 28 seconds. From when it gets rung in, it's on that platter, and it's out in 28 seconds to your table. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but you know what? But that's what we're about. It's exceeding those expectations. We use technology right here, the burger bar. Two different screens. It's a big restaurant, 288 seats. What happens in big restaurants when it rains Everybody comes in at once, you get, you get buried. So I divided the restaurant into two. This chef uses that screen for half of the restaurant. The other chef uses that screen for the other side. So I have both sides of the restaurant that are preparing the food. As it's coming up, it comes in, in each, tick, each ticket that comes in, they follow the order of the ticket that's com that comes in. First up, I have expediters outside that are exposing for one side. I have servers for one side, food runners for one side. Everything broken down so it is efficient. I have one restaurant in the pavilion that 
I have a 62-foot line, which is a duplicate of itself. There's two different kitchen lines doing the exact same thing for two halves of the restaurant, which means that you never get bogged down. And if one side experiences an issue, the other side can put up the food for it. The point of sale here for, for, for reservations, all of, the, all of the, the reservationists, they know the activity of every single restaurant live. So if you walk up and we're fully committed in Augusta's, they'll be able to tell you, oh, we have plenty of seats available in a Scottish pub. You can get a seat there right now. And if they say, well, you know, I, I would rather wait here. I want the oysters. Fine, it's gonna be 20 minutes for your table. But why don't you go down there, have a cocktail, and come back up here in 20 minutes? And we'll give and, you a beeper. And they will do it. So we're able to, we are able to control the volume, we're able to control the capacity, and we're able to at least, if we don't have a table, tell you who does, and then it's your decision of whether you want to do that. Most people will go and buy a golf shirt, and then they'll come back and then they'll be ready to die. Craig, Craig's giving me the timeline, so we're gonna blow okay. through this because we covered some of this. But again, five restaurants, menu mix is evenly distributed. The number on average, about 4.45 minutes from the time the ticket goes in the kitchen. Some places it's quicker, but that's the average of all five restaurants. Table lunch term time is 50, 50 minutes per restaurant. We turn each seat 2.65 times. Other, other, other than Augustus. Other than Augustus. People One hour and a half. They sit in Augusta. They socialize over oysters. Now, so. I got you your food in the first six minutes. <laughs> you know, so for the rest of the time, they sit there and they enjoy the experience. We are incredibly efficient. As I said yesterday, um, the operation has truly intrigued people. We're very, very proud of that. And the last thing is I've had three NFL teams and two major college football teams or athletic directors visit me in the last 12 months to say, how do you guys do it? We want to do it at such and such stadium. The reality of it is, folks, as I said earlier, the only way I think you do this is you've got to be committed to doing it yourself. Because I've talked to all of them, and they're all good companies. But the big operators that operate these stadiums are not going to be interested in this. Financially, they're not necessarily going to be interested. Quality-wise, and I hate to say it, it's just going to be too darn hard. But some of them are trying to do it. But as they try and replicate this model, then John and I are certainly flattered. But it's our goal then to just continue to try and make it better. Beer on tap. Oh, let's talk about beer, beer on tap. Yeah. Beer every bar, yeah. six to ten beers at each bar. Can't move kegs around the building. What do we have? All the beer is sent through glycol lines through the building. One tractor trailer on the back loading dock has all the kegs in it. One or two people manage that tractor trailer. Beer flows all day. You're not disrupting the, the experience by moving kegs around. Everything is, centered, is sent to the bars. Now that's 150 taps because there's multiple tap stations at each of the restaurant. That 18-wheeler that down there, it is manned by the folk that we buy the beer from. And they are more than happy to be on site and to be in there, to be changing it out all of the time. Here's a back shot of the building. You can't get the full scope of this, but this yeah. is the loading dock area. Um, you saw those pictures of the commissary, but there's a room for nine tractor trailers there. Again, we use a tremendous amount of product. So those tractor trailers are, are moved in and out in the evenings, uh, late at night to bring product into the building or product is brought. 
We did not want to take up space inside the building with coolers. So what do we do? We go to the vendor, we say, give us nine tractor trailers, and they're happy because you're buying a lot of volume from them. So we park them there, they're gone now. There's not any of those left. Plus there's redundancy here. If your cooler went down, you, you, may, not, you may lose all your product overnight. These are electrical and they have a diesel generator. So if the electric goes out, if, should we have a power outing, the diesel kicks right in so I don't lose any product. We and made, oh, it's sorry. easy for them to be serviced at nighttime. At 10 o'clock at night, there's a delivery schedule for all the products coming in. They'll be loaded into there. And then by 4 o'clock in the morning, my culinary team, they start to come in and start to do the production. Beverage dispensing, glassware storage, cleaning, we made the decision not to use plastic glassware, not to use plastic silverware in, in most of everything. You're eating off China, things like that. But in doing it, you have to have areas where you can wash glasses. You can't take glasses through a 120,000 square foot building. So each of the restaurants share a space kind of like this where all beverages dispense, glassware is stored, glassware is clean. There's a barista that works this area. That's why we're so efficient in getting drinks out because there's a guy watching a VDU and four Cokes come in and three lemonades come in and two iced teas come in and that's all he's doing is making those, putting them through the window, the waitress walks up or waiter walks up and there their drinks are and they go back to their table. Yeah, so there's a non-alcoholic side and there's an alcoholic side. So two of these individuals are looking at the ticket. If you've got a Jack and Coke, the bartender makes it. If you just got a Coke, I get a beverage attendant makes it. And they come out together and then they're sent out. This is one thing that I'm incredibly proud of. We talked about giving back and making a difference in the community. And many years ago, I would hire young high school students to come in and fold napkins. And by about the third day, they said, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I'm not gonna fold another napkin and they'd leave. But I didn't have a napkins folded. So what I did is I went to a company called Tri Development. It's actually a nonprofit in Aiken where it's, it's folks, disabled folks. My son, I think I told you yesterday, has Down syndrome. It's people with Down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities. And what we do is they fold napkins for us. They come in at night or they'll fold napkins. And then this, just in Berkman's place, this is all napkins on the property, but just at Berkman's place, they're folding 90,000 napkins. What do they get in return? We pay them by the piece. These people that are disabled then are able to take that money and go to movies, buy something. So the company Tri Development by contract does not keep it to buy a building. They give it right back to the employee so that they're able to go out and improve their lives, take a friend out to, a family member out to dinner, things like that. And it has absolutely been one of the greatest things we've done. It's a huge, huge win-win. And I would encourage all of you, whether it's member guests or anytime you do a high volume uh, event, you know, kids aren't gonna wanna sit and fold napkins for five hours. Look at people like this, because they are out there and they are very willing to, to, uh, to assist you. They I come in a month in advance, and all they'll do is fold the napkins. We don't fold a napkin at Berkman's Place during tournament. So I have 70,000 napkins already pre-folded because I can't have the turnaround to, to, to go in a laundry bin, then be transported out to a laundry, then to be pressed, and then to come back in. I don't do it. I can't do it. So we look at how many covers we're going to serve in the week. We double that number, that and then they're time. already folded and done. The last thing um, I want to talk about is this, this technology. So again, company has eight tickets, and they have eight people staying in someone's home in Augusta, Georgia, and they want to bring them to the tournament. They bring them in a shuttle. It was very important to me that when they got to Berkman's place, they didn't clog up the infrastructure. So what they do is we issue each company, each van, 
must have a certain number of tickets to get one of these. This is a parking pass for that vehicle. So let's say it's XYZ company. They're bringing eight guests in, they get one of these. This also has an RFID chip in it. When the van drops them off in the morning, all eight people get out. At the end of the day, the van goes to a holding area right across the street. When it comes back at the end of the day, it is registered in. So I know van 45 is back on the property. All of the vans have a little magnet on the side of them. And then what happens at the end of the day, and it's not up on this screen, but there are screens throughout the building. And so if you were shuttled in, dropped in in van 45, when that van comes back on the property, it'll punch up on that screen. It'll come up on that screen, van 45's here. So you're sitting in the bar, you're having a drink, you don't have to get up and walk outside and wonder if a van's here. Oh, there's our van here. Now you can sit there for another hour because it's, it's, not, in the, it's not in the queue yet. So then what happens, you go back, go back to that one slide. You then go, we trained everyone. Once you're ready to leave, you walk up to that counter. You say, I'm here to pick up van 45. This lady releases van 45. Van 45 pulls up and pulls up in the front of the space about the time the people get there and they're saying, how in the heck did they do this? We don't tell all the, the whole secret. But I was wondering that, how my van was waiting for me when I got there. <laughs> and then the last, amazing. the last slide, we talked about the warm welcome and the thank you. This is critical to what we do. So there you see Condoleezza Rice out there during the tournament, greeting people, taking pictures with her. And in essence, she welcomes them, but she also thanks them when they leave. And that's, that's throughout the organization. So with that... John and I would like to thank you for allowing us to be a small part of your conference. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.